So I noticed that Peter, in his prayer just now, began it, we praise you for who you are, O Lord. kind of struck me the thought that we don't just praise God for what he does, we praise God for who he is. And also, it reminded me of uh, the early days when I was dating my wife, and I remember the many conversations we had, and just how exciting it was to learn about her, to learn about her past, to learn what made her tick, her desires, where she wanted to be. There's something exciting about that when you have someone that you love, you discover more and more about who they are and what they are like. And so tonight, we're going to open up the little epistle of First John, chapter 1. It's our first time in this little book. And we're going to examine this question or this person of God and hopefully we're going to be able to do what Peter said to praise God for who he is more to understand more about this God that saved us that redeemed us and that we will dwell with forever so in light of that please open your Bibles to first John chapter 1 now beginning begin reading in verse 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is also in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So this little epistle of John begins in a very interesting way. It begins with that which was from the beginning, and you'll notice that um, there's really no verb until you get way later on, which finally goes on to say, and we proclaim. And so because of this, some translations have front-loaded that verb and started off with, and we proclaim... Right, the one we have seen, the one we have heard, the one we have touched, that which is from the beginning. Uh, and that certainly helps with readability and understanding, but the Greek is following this word order. Why did he do it this way? Well, the answer is not simply because the Greek mind was different than our mind and they somehow thought this was more intelligible than you do. That's not the right answer. That's an easy answer, but that's not the right answer. The right answer is that John is trying to stress not so much what he did, namely proclaim, but who he proclaimed. And he wanted to stress who this individual was 
and what their attributes are. And the thing that he stresses is the very first thing he says, that which was from the beginning. Now that phrase, from the beginning, is speaking about a being who is not a created being, but is a being that has always existed, that has life in himself. The theological term for that is God's aseity. Right? Sometimes you will hear that word, but often it's not used too much anymore. But that's the word, aseity, which means God has life in himself. God is the necessary being. You are a contingent being. God always existed and necessarily exists, and without him, nothing would exist. Everything else is contingent. That chair could be here or could not be here. If that chair wasn't here, it would affect nothing, even us. We could exist. We could not exist. In fact, you at one point did not exist, and the world kept on going without you, right? And if you cease to exist, the world will keep on going on without you. You're a created being that's contingent, that came into being by the necessary being that has life within himself, that is the creator and sustainer of all things. And that, of course, is what we refer to as God. There is nothing else that was from the beginning. Just think back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning with space and time and matter and chance. That is the lie of the world. But the truth of God is in the beginning, God. And if you don't get this truth, then everything else will be built on sand. You have to build your theology, and you're thinking about God, where the Bible begins is theology and thinking about God, namely that he is the necessary being which created all things, or more importantly, created you. And that's why you're accountable to this great God. So this passage is referring to the eternality of Jesus. What this means is that Jesus is not a created being. Every heretical group out there will tell you that Jesus is not God, but a God. In other words, he's a false god. He's not truly God. He's a created being. That's called Arianism. Jesus is Michael the Archangel or some kind of created being. It's false. It's not true. There's also Unitarianism. It says Jesus was merely a man. That's partially true. He was a man. God became man. But that's not where we finish. And he certainly did not become God. That's adoptionism. So all these things are false, but the Bible is clear that Jesus does not have a beginning. Jesus is that which is from the beginning. From the very beginning, God, Jesus, was there. And the Bible makes this very clear. In Revelation 22, it says this, Behold, I am coming soon to bring my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Let me stop there. Who do you think, who is that? Who's the person who constantly says, I am coming soon? Right? It's Jesus, right? We all know that. And you can go back in Revelation 22 for yourself and see this clear reference to Jesus. Actually, a little later on, right past this passage, it says, I, Jesus, right after that. It's very clear that the speaker here is Jesus. Jesus is the one coming soon. Jesus is the one bringing his recompense with him. Jesus is the one who will pay each one for what he has done. But this same Jesus says this in verse 13 of Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I remember bringing a Jehovah Witness to this verse. And saying, you believe Jesus is a created being. Well, does Jesus believe he's a created being? Because Jesus says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the first and the last. And I can see him stumbling and trying to come up with some way to make this not mean that Jesus was, in fact, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the first and the last. And as he was kind of letting his wheels turn and trying his very best to try to deny this refer to Jesus, but he couldn't, I then took him to Revelation 1.8. 
And Revelation 1.8 says this, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I said, who is this referring to? Well, it says it right there. Says the Lord God. He is the Almighty. This is God the Father, isn't it? Yes. What does it mean that he is the Alpha and the Omega? You know this refers to his eternality, that he's timeless, that he's outside of reality. He's the beginning and the end. So how, when it refers to Jesus, it doesn't mean that, but when it refers to God the Father, it does mean that. It's inconsistent. You can't hold it together. And interesting enough, actually the phrase referring to Jesus is stronger than the phrase referring to God the Father. God the Father is the Alpha and the Omega, but Jesus is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's even stronger. It's even greater emphasis being brought to the Son, but they still wanted to deny the eternality of the Son. And we should not do that. We should accept the language of the Bible and what it testifies about Jesus. That language, again, as I point back to Genesis 1, that language of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, very clearly refer to God's eternality. The heavens and the earth refer to all things. There's nothing else besides the heavens and the earth. This is the way the Bible often describes all of creation. And so if God was in the beginning... And he did this. God created the heavens and the earth. That means God must not be a created being. It's a very simple, very simple idea. So that's what in the beginning refers to. And we know this for absolute certainty because when you go to Psalm 90, verse 2, which was the psalm written by, anybody know? Who wrote Psalm 90? Stephanie, do you know? Moses. Moses wrote Psalm 90. And here's what Moses says. It's basically a commentary in some ways on what he meant in Genesis 1. And here's what Moses says about God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isn't that amazing? Before you did anything, before you created the earth, before you had formed the world, in other words, in the beginning, that statement meant from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's always amazing what people will say. They'll try to get into the mind of ancient people. The ancient people believe this. The ancient people believe that. Usually what they're doing is finding the heretics or the people around that area, which the Jews disagreed with, and saying, of course, they must have agreed with these people. But thank God that sometimes the Bible actually tells you what these people meant by what they said. And we know very clearly that Moses meant, when he said in the beginning, God, that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You existed from eternality. You are the eternal God, and then you brought forth the world from that eternality. Well, the interesting thing is, if we know that's the right interpretation of Genesis 1-1 because of Psalm 90, well, again, the statement here says that that which from the beginning and refers it to the Son. So if the Father is eternal because of Genesis 1-1 and Psalm 90, then the Son is eternal according to 1 John 1. I hope that makes sense. You cannot argue the eternality from God the Father from Genesis 1 and Psalm 90 and deny the eternality of the Son, which uses the exact same language in 1 John chapter 1. They're very closely trying to draw a connection. He knows that people remember that he said, well, God said the same thing in Genesis 1-1. He wants you to think, oh, in Genesis 1-1, it wasn't just God the Father. It was also God the Son. And by the way, when you go into the Genesis account, you know what's interesting? You see the phrase, let us make man in his image. Now, I know people try to deny this, try to tell you that this doesn't actually mean that multiple people are making uh, man in his image. I don't see how, according to the biblical testimony, that's going to be tenable. Very clear, the plain meaning of let us make man in our own image is there's a plurality of persons. And then, sure enough, when we get the full revelation of God, guess what we find out? There's plurality of persons. Don't let 
people with PhDs hide around, pretend that they know what they're talking about, steal the simple truth of the Bible from you. You know what the Bible means and believe and stand on what you see in the Bible. With this same idea that there's multiple persons and the one person of God, or one, I shouldn't say that, there's multiple persons and the one being of God, is also found in John chapter 1, the same author who wrote 1 John chapter 1. You might remember these words in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, there's repetition there. It's very clear that he wants to communicate something, namely that there's this individual called the Word, and he is God. What does it mean, the Word was God? Well, actually, it's interesting that the Jehovah Witness Bible uh, changes that and says the Word was a God. That's what it says there. But it's interesting if you go on the online version of the Jehovah Witness Bible, there's a little footnote there you can click on. They put that there, not me. And it says, or was divine. So I like to take Jehovah Witness there and say, you know, according to your own Bible translation, your infallible truth, the watchtower, they say that this also could mean was divine. So this is exactly what it means. That verse is declaring that in the beginning there was a person called the Word, and the Word was divine. That is, he's a divine person. And the Word, this divine person, was with God. God refers to God the Father. So you have two divine people, God the Son and God the Father, and they were together in the beginning. These are the two people, including the Holy Spirit, of course, that said, let us make man in our image. This is what the Bible says. Or John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus said, you... He's talking to the Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. How did the Father love the Son before the foundation of the world? Because he was with him from the beginning. He was that which is from the beginning. He is eternal. And this is actually uh, referred to as the doctrine of the Trinity. People get all confused about the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not going to say there's not mystery to it. There's not confusion. Of course there is. But really, it's right here. There is one God. There is one divine being, but within that one divine being, there is a community of persons. There are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or just take John 1. In the beginning, from eternity past, the Word was with the Father and His Son, excuse me, and the Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine of the Trinity, the one God. But within that one God, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this doctrine is not just some esoteric doctrine that's just fascinating, but it actually helps us explain one of the fundamental things that we say about God. Namely, that we say God is... Can anybody finish that sentence? God is what? Anybody know? Love. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible says, 1 John 4, 16. God is love. You're not going to find a lot of other statements. God is something, right? But you do see God is love. He is foundationally, fundamentally love. How can that be? Love requires an object, right? Who did God fundamentally love from all of eternity? John 17, 24. You, the Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. How can God be fundamentally love? How can God be fundamentally personal? It's because he's had an object to love for all of eternity, namely the Father loving the Son and the Holy Spirit and this is divine community. God doesn't need you. God did not create angels and man for community. He already had community. God was perfect without you, but God invites us into this divine community. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Am I suggesting deification that we become gods? Absolutely not. For one reason, we can never become God. God is uncreated, you are created. By definition, you cannot become God. It's impossible. God cannot create an uncreated being. That is nonsense. It's a pure contradiction. So no, of course you don't become God. But there's this fellowship of three persons. It's divine unity, community. And then God creates angels and men. And then we enter into the kingdom of God. And what will, in that community of God, who will we see? Who will we be with? What will our fellowship be with? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This beautiful community is something that we get to also fellowship with. That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We have a relationship with the Father, don't we? Don't you pray to the Father? We have a relationship with the Son. Don't we sing about the greatness of the Son? And how we worship the Son. And we also have a fellowship and a community and a relationship with the Holy Spirit. God in us. We have a relationship with all three persons of the Trinity. And it's a beautiful thing. And God, by His grace, has allowed us to have a relationship with all three persons. And this is why we're baptized in the singular name, one God, but three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus told us, to go baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So we see that our passage here in 1 John 1 begins talking about the eternality of Jesus, and it points to the deity of Jesus. The next thing that we're told about this eternal person that's always existed with the Father is we're told that we have seen him with our eyes, and we have touched him with our hands, and we have heard him with our ears. Now, I like the, the emphasis that's being brought here is because this is not talking about some mystical seeing, some mystical hearing, some mystical feeling. Sometimes people talk about, like, I saw Jesus. Did you really? How did you see Jesus? With your eyeballs? Well, not quite. You know, I, it was more, you know, that's what you get. You know. Well, that's not what you get here. That's not what they're talking about. This is not some mystical experience, some quasi-conscious thing going on. No, they actually saw Jesus with their eyeballs, just like you're seeing me. They actually felt Jesus just like you can feel the chair that you're sitting in right now. They actually heard Jesus just like you heard my voice. And Actually, look at the emphasis. So they say that uh, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that's what we looked upon and touched with our hands. And then look to verse 2, and we have seen it. And then look down to verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He says it over and over and over again. Why? Emphasis. Just like when God is called holy, holy, holy. The thrice holy God. It's to emphasize something. Why is he emphasizing this? Because he wants you to know we actually felt and saw and touched this person. And what he's denying is people, because of Greek philosophy, who wanted to deny the humanity of Jesus. Here's how their doctrine went. The body is inherently evil. God is good. So God can't take a body. Does that make sense? If God is inherently good, and obviously God cannot be contaminated, and if the body is inherently evil and matter is inherently evil, then, then God can't become man. But, but we're teaching that God did become man, namely in the incarnation of Jesus the Son. So what do you do? Well, you check out the body of Christ. That's what you do. And say, well, no, he did not actually become a man. He just looked like a man. He was a hologram. And they would say things like, you know, when Jesus was walking on the beach, you know, he's walking, right? But look, no footsteps. Now, of course, the apostles never said that 
they were walking and saw no footsteps. No, they said the exact opposite. They said that he would eat and it would go down inside of him. Said he would touch them and he would hear them and they saw him. And remember, Jesus even says, I'm not a ghost. The very thing they were basically saying of Jesus, that he was, just looked like a human. I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Remember that with Thomas? Feel me. Put your hand inside of me. Jesus was most certainly God become flesh. And he's trying to emphasize here, it's not a figment of my imagination. We actually felt and saw and seen and heard God become flesh. I just want you to stop for a second and think about how radical that statement really is. Right? Sometimes we just say it so much, we don't really stop and say, they saw God become flesh. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. John teaches it elsewhere. He also teaches it in John chapter 1, the gospel of John. He says, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who did they see? The word become flesh. Who was that? The Son of God, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.5 gives us the uh, most detailed account of this incarnation. Philippians 2.5 says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to just hear, being in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being in the likeness of of men. He was in the form of God, and then he humbled himself and took on the lowly form of us, a man. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. And you can put this in a pithy little way and say this. The Son of God, we'll put it differently, God became a Son of Man so that we could become a Son of God. That's what the incarnation is. God became a Son of Man so we could become a son of God. That's exactly what the Bible says. John 1.12 says this, but to all who receive him, hopefully that's you. Hopefully everyone in this room has received him. How do we receive him? By believing in his name. Hopefully we received Christ by believing in his name, his person, his mission, and what he accomplished on that cross, namely our salvation. And because of this, he gave the right to become a child of God. That's the gospel. God became man. So you could become a son of God. The last thing that we find in verse 1 of 1 John 1, 1 is the title of Jesus there described. He doesn't come out and say um, concerning Jesus Christ. Right? Instead, he says at the end of John 1, 1, he says, or 1 John 1, 1, uh, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So instead of giving the name of Jesus, it's very clearly there's no question that's referring to Jesus. But instead of giving his name, he gives a title. He gives a description of Jesus. And one commentator said this about the phrase, word of life. He says, word of life means the word in which life resided, or which was the source and fountain of life. John Gill says, he is called the word of life because he has life in himself, a saity, he's always existed, as God, and as the mediator and as man, he is the author of life, natural, spiritual, and eternal. So he's the word of life because he's the fountain of life. He is the source of life. And I like what he says. He's the source of life when it comes to our natural life. 
He's the source of life when it comes to our spiritual life, and he's the source of life when it comes to our eternal life. And that's exactly correct. Hebrews 1, 3 says of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Let me back up a little bit on that. Before we talk about him, how he is the word of life, let's talk about the fact that he is the word, which is the same description we find in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. So here we have the word of life, but let's focus on the phrase word, and then we'll look back on that phrase life. So in what way is Jesus, the Son, the Word of God. Well, what do words do? Words communicate. Words express. In the beginning of this sermon, I talked about the glory of getting to know your, uh, your love, someone, even a friend, getting to know them. How do you get to know them? Not by looking at them. There's only so much information you can get from gleaning at my eyeballs. You need to talk. You need to share how you're feeling and what's going on inside. Communication. I.e. words. Words are just a form of communication. Well, God the Son is the communication of God the Father. He's the person. God the Son makes the invisible God visible. And this is what the Bible says. That's why Hebrews 1, 3 says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance. What does that imagery convey? Well, radiance has the idea of rays coming from the sun. And this is actually the picture that the early church pointed to. You have the sun, but you don't actually see the sun. You see the light, the radiance that comes from the sun that beams out of it. The way that you are acquainted with the sun is by way of its lights. And they said that light, that radiance, is like the relationship between the Father and the Son. The sun makes the invisible God visible. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, as far as him being the life the word of life, how is he? Life, again, that goes back to that good quote. He's the source of natural, spiritual, and eternal. He's the source of natural life is described in Colossians 1.16, which says, really interesting. It says in Colossians 1.16 that by him, referring to Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus Christ is your creator. Not Jesus Christ become man, of course, but the person. The person who became man, the Word, the Son of God. He's your creator. He's the one who directly created you, was the Son. And he created all things, God the Father created all things through him and for him. Or he's also your sustainer. The reason that you don't cease to exist is because God the Son upholds you and keeps you from flying apart as molecules just going in every which direction. We find that in Hebrews 1-3b. It says of Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God, the Son, is a source of life in the sense that he created you and he sustains you. So thank him for it. Right? Thank him for it. Really, thank you, God, for creating me. Thank you, Jesus, for creating me. Thank you, God, for sustaining me. Thank you, Jesus, for sustaining me. You give me life and breath and you even keep my molecules from flying apart and from me disappearing altogether. And this is the same. He's also, Christ is not only the our creator and sustainer, and who we're made for. But he's also the source of our spiritual and eternal life. And you can find this doctrine found in John 1, 4. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so, in Christ is the life, our life, our physical life and our spiritual life. We need life by being in Christ. Only you get life by only getting in him, right? You just imagine, like, a bunker, or maybe an ark, 
And in that ark is full of food. In the ark, there's the food. Outside of the ark, there's waters of death. You need to get in the ark to be safe from the waters of death and get to the food. And that's the way it is with Christ. You need to be in Christ to get life to the waters of death, not to overtake you and for you to survive. And this life was the light of men, meaning that if we have spiritual light, if we are no longer walking in darkness but now are walking in the light, if we now see clearly who God is and his beauty and our fellowship with God has been restored, that comes from the spiritual life that God provided you. So if you have spiritual light, you have spiritual life. And that's a great comfort, right? Because you can't see your spiritual life. That's a promise from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise of God that he gives you life. That you have eternal life for dwelling in you. But you cannot see that. But what you can see is the spiritual light that you have. And that spiritual light, namely that you have this new born-again life, points to the fact that you have eternal life. So how do you know? I don't know. I hope I didn't confuse you. How do you know that you have eternal life if you have spiritual light and you're walking with God? If you know God, if you walk with him, if you love him, if he walks with you, you can guarantee yourself that you have spiritual life. This is the word of life that they have come to proclaim and to preach to them. Now this is exactly what... Exactly what John goes on to tell us in verse 2. He says many things that we've already covered. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest. That refers to the incarnation. How was he made manifest? By becoming flesh. And we have seen him, and we testify to it, and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So we see the incarnation spoken of in the manifestation. We see a repetition of the fact that they've seen him. But now we have a new idea that we have not only seen this God become flesh, but we don't just keep it in. We don't just hold it to ourselves. We testify. We proclaim. We present this truth of the experience that we have experienced with this God to all of you. And that's exactly what we're all called to do. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light in order for you to proclaim this to others. This is our great privilege. This is our great duty. But it's not just a duty, it's a privilege. One person said evangelism is one hungry person telling another hungry person where to find bread. That, that's what we do. We're supposed to be like these apostles who have seen and felt and heard the Lord is good and we go and proclaim it to others. And why? Well, we see the reasons, and we'll go over this quickly and we'll close here. We see the reasons listed in verse 3 and 4. The first reason is that so you can have fellowship with us. One of the reasons we go and proclaim Jesus Christ to other people is because we want friends. We want people who can be joined with us, people that speak the same things we speak and love the same things that we love, people that are not children of the devil but children of God. We want more friends, and that's what... The people of God are, in some sense, we're friends. We're all going in the same direction. If you don't like us, you got some working on. You got some things to work on because you're going to spend eternity with us. We want friends, and we want people to join us in this fellowship with each other. And we want to see people come into the light as we are in the light. But it's not just that we're so wonderful people. We kind of are in Christ, only by His grace. But it's not just that. It's really not even primarily that. It's mostly what He says next. 
Indeed, our fellowship. He's like, why do you want to be friends with us? Well, because we're friends with God. That's why. Because our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. You want to be friends with us because we're friends with God. And under this, this is that triune community that I was talking about. This is great. This is where we're meant to be. God, in the beginning, walked with man. That's what we want to be. We want you to join us in the Garden of Eden so you can walk with us as we walk with God. And the last reason that he goes out and proclaims this good news, this message, is found in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, this is where it's a little scary to use, have multiple translations out there. Does anybody's translation say that your joy may be complete? Nobody? Okay, no KJV Bibles in the congregation. Um, so there's a, there's a uh, debate whether this should be our joy or your joy. It's somewhat surprising that the word uh, our joy is there. You would expect we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete, namely that you know that you have salvation and all of the rest, okay? which very well could be what's going on here and it's very well true. Our joy, though, is also very plausible. I think it's probably the right meaning here is because our joy is found in your joy. It's not like opposed, right? We want to see you happy. And our joy will be complete if your joy is complete because you have now been reconciled to God. Well, just think of it this way. What does the Bible say that happens when one sinner repents? Heaven. It's an uproar in heaven. The angels rejoice. And then really the sign of a Pharisee is when someone gets saved and you're mad about it. That's not, that's not the way it is. Our joy is complete by seeing your joy complete by you being saved. We go and evangelize not because we just want people to agree with us. This is not trying to debate what football team is the best team. That doesn't matter. This is trying to see your joy complete by you being saved and reconciled to God and coming back to the God that you've abandoned. And that's our goal, and that's what we do. And let us do that. If we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, let's proclaim this God so people can be in fellowship with us but most importantly, be in fellowship with the Father and the Son. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this wonderful gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we are sinners. We are vile. We deserve nothing but hell. And yet, the eternal life, which was forever with the Father, was manifested to men, so that we receive him, and we have, and that we could become sons of God. And we thank you so much for that gospel, that truth, Lord. And we ask you that we would not put our light under a basket. Lord, we can become so scared, so self-absorbed, so confused of why we're here, that we forget to shine our lights. Please, Lord, help us to not do that. Help us to share the gospel so that our joy may be complete by their joy being made complete in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.